The book of Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those five books making up the Torah. The Torah in the Hebrew Scriptures. First five books, the books written by Moses. The book of Deuteronomy being that book that is Moses' teaching is making relevant the law of God to the people of Israel as they're on the east side of the Jordan River ready to cross over Moses takes them back and begins to recount all kinds of things go into the law and make sure the new generation of Israel will understand the law grasp it and apply it to their lives and you hear a sense of pleading in the voice of Moses throughout this book part of the reason you hear such a great sense of pleading is Moses prophetically knows what's coming for Israel. He warns them over and over, don't do what the people in the land do. Don't be like the people in the land that you're going into. Don't get into idol worship. Tear down the idols. Destroy the places, the very places where the idols are. Get rid of all that stuff. Don't be like that because if you are like that, you're going to be driven out of the land. Which is exactly what happened to Israel. Their history is so precisely written in the Bible. We're going to see some of that. In fact, what we're going to look at this morning is epic. We are going to scratch the surface of the epic story that involves not only Israel, but it involves you and I as well. I would like to go literally today for hours on this because there is so much more we can get to that we're not going to be able to get to in the next few minutes together. My prayer is that what we study and look at this morning will drive you to the Word of God. Will cause you to want to find out for yourself, not just take Pastor Rick's word for it or any other teacher's word for it, but that you go to the Scriptures and you study this out and you know these things to be true because you have seen them with your own eyes. The more I study God's Word, the more I am in this book, the more absolutely convinced I am of its absolute and unequivocal truth. There is no writing like this. The true and holy Word of God. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 18, beginning in verse 15, Moses is speaking to the people and he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. From among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire any more, or I will die. Then the Lord said to me, They've spoken well. I'll raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words when he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Father, may we be of those who listen to your words spoken through your great prophet, that we might understand and know you God, the Bible tells us that Jesus came that you might be explained to us. That we might see and understand who our awesome, majestic, wonderful, loving God really is. That we can see, Father, your characteristics and your very nature with flesh and blood. God, we are amazed and, and blown away that you'd do what you did. That you would put on an earth suit and you'd walk among us to show us who you are and to draw us back into relationship with you. God, as we study your scriptures this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be on our hearts. And that though we're scratching the surface, you would give us deep insight, Lord. 
And Father, I pray that, Lord, You would put a fire in the hearts of each one of us. As Jeremiah said, like a fire in our bones, that we cannot hold it in. We grow weary of it. We've got to let it out. I pray that we would be so passionate, so hungry, and so desirous, Father, as a fellowship and as individuals here this morning, so desirous to understand and know Your Word that we would pour over the Scriptures. We would be those who, like the Bereans, who are noble people because they searched out every word that was taught to them to see if it was true in the Scriptures. Father, drive us there. Keep us there. Not just this morning, but through the week in our own time. And let us be those who thrive on Your Word and the outpouring of Your Holy Spirit in our lives. We pray this morning, Spirit, You'd be our teacher and our guide. Open our eyes, Lord. And open our ears. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Gas prices are coming down. <laughs> Whoa, we're like down in the 250s. It's just amazing. It's going to change everything about how I vote in November. I mean, I'm so excited. I just want to go out and buy gas. I have a full tank. I'm driving down to the gas station. Man, because I'm saving money now. See, they've done it to us, haven't they? They've raised up the prices so high that now as they're coming back down, we're excited, but it's still not anywhere where it used to be. But I'm trying to understand this whole gas price thing. And I know what most of us think. It's the Arabs. It's their big rich houses and their cars. It's the Middle East conglomerates that are over there and they're driving the prices up. And you know, that's part of it. But it's not all of it. In fact, they say only about 50% of the reason why gas prices are set where they are has to do with those who supply the oil. A large part of it has to do with something, and this kind of mentality is just amazing to me. Those of you who are investors and market watchers will know exactly what I'm talking about when I speak the word futures. The futures market is a large reason why gas prices got so high and now why they're coming back down. Let me see if I can explain this to you. Just listen for a second. See, assumptions were made that drove gas prices up. After Katrina, there was fear of another hurricane maybe coming into the Gulf and doing the same kind of damage. And because of that fear, a year ago, gas prices went up. Emotion. The stock market's all emotion-based. It is an emotional beast. And I use that word beast on purpose. But gang, when some of these things didn't happen, when another hurricane didn't hit, when things settled down in different areas in the world... The futures look brighter. Let me see again if I can explain this. I'm going to read this to you and some of you are probably going to go, huh? Which is exactly what I did. That's okay. Just listen up for a second. Futures are contracts made on futures exchange and dealing with delivering certain activities to a certain place at a certain time in the future. It's air. Futures are air. It's buying and selling air. There's nothing to it. The moment when such a contract is made, no commodities are delivered and no payment is made. Great. Why? The peculiarity of futures contracts is the highest level of their standardization. Contracts are standardized according to the quantity, the specification, the place, and the date of delivery. And since not all basic commodities can be standardized, there are futures contracts only for the main ones. Are you with me? Good. The futures for agricultural products and metals, oil, exchange indices, currencies, shares, etc. are traded on markets around the world at this very moment. All these things are traded even though they're not traded. (laughs) 
even though they don't yet exist, trading and contracts are being made on them. And again, it's air. There are two types of market participants who deal with futures. Two types of people who get involved with the futures market. They're called hedgers and they're called speculators. Hedgers use futures as protection against price fluctuation. As a rule, they produce or use some basic commodity in their regular business. But unlike hedgers, who I know you all completely understand now, speculators buy and sell futures only to earn a profit from the price fluctuation. And there's a great risk in speculating on the futures market. So only those investors who realize the entire risk and can afford it can take part in it. Speculating on this market, you can either earn a much larger profit from the initially invested amount or as compared to other financial instruments, uh, you can make correspondingly large losses. Fantastic. What is this, Economics 101? I had to read that about ten times before I started getting some idea that I didn't know what it was talking about. Gain simply put, the futures market is buying and selling based on what might happen. Based on what could happen, not based on what is. And what's interesting to me is 2,000 years ago, the Apostle James, or not the Apostle James, the brother of Jesus James, wrote about the futures market. He actually anticipated it. Listen to what he says. James chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a city, spend a year there, engage in business, and make a profit. He goes on to say, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. Bottom line, from Jesus' brother, the futures market, it's all speculation. You don't know what's going to happen. There's no way you can possibly know. We want to know the future so that we can make a profit. God sent the prophets so that we could know the future. See the difference there? Boy, if there's one thing we in our country, in this world, want to know, it's the future. We want to know tomorrow. We want to have some sense. What's going to happen in this relationship? What's going to happen in my family? What's going to happen when, when the bills are due or the mortgage is due? What's going to happen down the line when my life might change? Am I going to be living here next year? The future. We're hungry to know about the future. But greater than any of that, deep down inside of every one of us, there's a question about the ultimate future. What's going to happen to me? Eventually, Where am I headed? What is this life really for? I don't want to think about that. And so off we go, busy and scattered and stressed out. I want to ask you this morning to pause and think about your future. Understand something of your future. James says again, you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. The future's market game is boasting in arrogance. It's guessing at something that cannot be known until the future itself actually happens. But there is a place that we can go to rightly consider the future. And it's not in boastful arrogance, it's biblical assurance. You can know your future without any doubt. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're going, you're kind of waffling, I'm not really sure. If I died today, I don't know what would happen to me. I'm not sure what God has planned. I'm, I'm a little nervous about this whole thing. Then you need to listen up. Because God didn't intend for anybody to be confused about his or her future. 
As for me, gang, where eternity is concerned, I don't want to hedge my bets. And I don't want to speculate. I want to know that I know that I know what my future is going to be. I want assurance. And that is why we study Bible prophecy. Because it brings an incredible assurance. A solid foundation on which we can stand in this world. Look back at Deuteronomy 18. Gang, it's not, it's not for ear tickling that we look at these things. It's not for a spiritual buzz that we check out biblical prophecy. There, is solid, or there are solid reasons for it. Reasons that Moses gives that I want you to understand just three of them this morning. But again, back in Deuteronomy 18. Verse 15, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. What's the context in that? He's saying, don't go to the other things. And the verses that precede this, he talks about not having anything to do with witchcraft and diviners, and those who cast a spell and divination, and those who interpret omens or sorcerers or mediums or spiritists, or someone who calls up the dead. Don't have anything to do with that. 1-800-CALL-THE-PSYCHIC. God says, have nothing to do with that. Well, Lord, I want to know the future. I got you covered, he would say. I'm going to send a prophet. I'm going to send one who not only knows the future and can tell you the future, he is the future. And you don't have to mess with all this other human stuff. Listen to this prophet. He said, it's according to all that you asked on the day that the Lord your God, you asked the Lord on the day in Horeb, on the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see his great fire anymore or I will die. And the Lord said, they have spoken well. And this is one of those places where Hollywood got it completely wrong. They completely missed it. Moses was not the first one to hear the Ten Commandments. All of Israel heard the Ten Commandments. Then, after they were spoken, Moses goes up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. But the people heard them spoken by the voice of God. That's what freaked them out. Turn back in your Bibles for a moment to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19. Exodus 19, beginning about verse 16. Just read this story together. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now because Mount, now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. Get this picture. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke with God, and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, and he said, Go down and warn the people so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves or else the Lord will break out against them. And it tells us, Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you warned us, saying, set the bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through and come up to the Lord or he will break forth upon them. And so Moses went down to the people. Absolute mercy, by the way, of God here. 
he descends on the mountain. He's already told them, don't come up the mountain. Set boundaries around the mountain so none of the people can get up there. Because if they do, they'll die. And now Moses comes up and God tells him again, go back down and make sure, Moses. Because if anyone comes near this mountain, they will die. This is a serious, dangerous moment in the history of Israel. So Moses goes back down and talks to the people. And he comes back up. And when Moses goes up the mountain, the people are gathered around the bottom of the mountain. In chapter 20, verse 1 says, God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Skip down to verse 18 of chapter 20. It tells us that all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. And they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. I want you to be there for a moment. Join the Israelites surrounding that mountain looking up. And what would you do? How would you react? The mountain is quaking violently. Now, I don't know about how many people here have been in an earthquake. Can I just get a show of hands? Okay, quite a few of you. I'm not sure any of you react to an earthquake the way my mother-in-law does. <laughs> this, is, this is a picture of a woman who's in control, and she is you know, at peace, and she's, she's a get-it-done kind of gal, and I'm going to be in trouble for sharing this. But when an earthquake comes, get out of the way. She is saving herself. I, I, I just remember a time... <laughs> up and she was standing there in the house and an earthquake was happening and all her mom could say is, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? You know, and Cheryl's like, get in the doorway. That's what they tell you in California. Get in the doorway. You know, because you've got the beams there. I don't think it makes that big a difference if the floor is coming out from under you. But, you know, you do what you can in these situations. Sometimes we read scripture gang and we just go running by these things and we don't think about the terror of the moment. This mountain was quaking. Shaking, rocks falling all around. There was thunder, flashes of lightning, a thick cloud, fire all over the top of the mountain. And when God spoke, it was a trumpet blast. It was thunder. It was so huge, so loud, so frightening that the people thought, if we hear this, we will die. And that's the situation. And that's the reality of trying to approach a holy God when you are not a holy people. You try to approach God in your sin. You try to come to God just as you are. Without that perfect sacrifice of Jesus, and you will die. Because He is so holy. His grasp, His... Here's a Father who wants so desperately to hold us, and yet if He were to do it without any covering, if He were to do it without any protection for us, we would be instantly killed. He is so great. This is what the people saw up on this mountain. And they said no more. They heard the Ten Commandments spoken by God and they said, Enough! We can't hear any more from this voice. Moses, you go talk to him. And they come back and tell us what he says. Like Jack Nicholson said, they can't handle the truth. I just see him right there going, You can't handle it. He would make a great Moses. I'd like to see Jack Nicholson play Moses. Wouldn't that be great? You can't handle the truth. I'm going to go up that mountain and I can't do Jack Nicholson. But gang, since man's rebellious fall from grace in the garden, God has been God has been aching to hold us again, to draw back into relationship with us. And there had to be a way to do that. 
He longs to embrace us, but in his purity and his holiness, his embrace would crush us dead. So what does he do? What would you do if you're in that situation? Your children have rebelled, and you can't go to them as you are, because you'll kill them. They'll die instantaneously. How do you get through? How do you send, as it were, a message to them? And once that message is sent, how can people know for certain that the message is from God? There are a lot of holy writings, so-called, in the world. A lot of books. A lot of scriptures, a lot of people who say, hey, my book's right, this book's right, that book's right. How do you know? Well, this is the way I was raised. Bad answer. Can I just say that for you all? Listen, if you're a Christian because of how you were raised, and you can quote me on that. Don't, don't be a believer because of how you were raised. You be a believer because you know Jesus Christ yourself. How can we know the message is legitimate? Chuck Missler says the following. He says, we don't take prophecy seriously because it's in the Bible. We take the Bible seriously because of its track record of prophecy. No other book written, gang, no other book in the history of the world has a track record like the Holy Scriptures, like the Bible, for fulfilling itself. Prophecy spoken 3,500 years ago, fulfilled 2,000 years ago. Time in between when the prophecy was given and when it was fulfilled that we can see, we can look at it, we can know absolutely that this book is true, that it is a message from God. Now you note takers, if you want to jot a few things down, I'm going to give you three things to write down this morning. And the first one is simply this, biblical prophecy authenticates God's message, the Bible. Biblical prophecy authenticates God's message, the Bible. It's authentication. That's, that's the first key to understanding why would we study Bible prophecy at all. It's not just an occasional thrill in the reading of Scripture. It is the reason to believe in Scripture. This book claims to be the Word of God. And if it can't prove it, I'm putting it away. I'm going to put it on the shelf with other dusty, dusty relics and historical works and say, yeah, it's one of those that could be. I want to know that it is. And I can tell you with assurance, I believe it is. For all the things that I have seen in prophecy. Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 19. He says, we have the prophetic word more sure. To which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's quite a radical claim. This book is written by men moved by the Holy Spirit of God Himself. That's why we have these writings. Really? I don't know. Maybe some of it. Yeah, maybe some of it is kind of God-spoken, or maybe it's just guys, guys who are somewhat inspired in their relationship with God. But you're, you're telling me you actually think these words are God's words literally? Absolutely I do. But, well, Rick, why would you think that? Because the prophecy proves it, bears it out time and time again. God says in the book of Isaiah, chapter 41, one of my favorite passages, He says, Present your case. Bring forward your strong arguments. This is God's challenge to any religion that would claim to be the right religion. Go ahead, bring forth your arguments. Let's see your proof. The king of Jacob says, let them bring forth and declare to us what's going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome. Or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we may know that you are gods. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear altogether. Behold, you're of no account. 
and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. And my friends, God in that passage is taunting the demonic realm. And I love it. I love it. God's saying, well, come on, go ahead, bring it. Bring your best arguments. Tell you what, you show up with me on the same day and you tell me what's going to happen next week. You tell me what's going to go on in the futures market. You show me what's going to happen in 10 years or 100. I'll tell you what, let's put it out. You tell me what's going to happen in 1,000 years and let's watch those things take place. God says, I can prove myself to you. I can authenticate these words for you. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to share some things with you that are going to take place in the future. And you're going to watch them happen. And if they come true, this is the book. And if they don't, throw it away. He is so clear. Let me give a small example of the historical accuracy of biblical prophecy. And this is one of those areas I said a moment ago, we can only make little scratches. This is stuff you've got to go home and look at yourself. I am so absolutely sure of this of this word being the word of God and the prophecies engaged in Scripture that I'll resign as pastor of the bridge. Here's your challenge. I'll resign. I'll walk away. I'll get out of ministry if you can show me that this Bible is not legitimate. Because so sure I am of what I have seen. And you've got to study it to know that. But for this morning, let me give you just one small example. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah about 700 years before Christ came. And he says the following. He says, It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, She will be built, and of the temple your foundation will be laid. God spoke this through the prophet Isaiah at a time when the temple in Jerusalem was waylaid, completely destroyed. Jerusalem itself had been sacked. There was nothing there. And God says, I'm going to raise up a shepherd. And by the way, I'm going to be specific for you. I'm going to name him. I'm going to raise up a shepherd named Cyrus. And this guy Cyrus is going to declare the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple. And you know what? Cyrus wasn't even a Hebrew. 150 years after this prophecy was made, a king, a Persian king, by the name of Cyrus, came on the scene and gave permission for the the Jewish people to go back and begin to rebuild Jerusalem. 150 years after the fact, God doesn't just vaguely throw out a prophecy. He names names. Cyrus is going to come, and when he comes, you're going to be able to rebuild the temple. And it happened exactly as God said it would happen. Ezra, chapter 1, verse 1, says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now Randall Price, in his fantastic book, Jerusalem and Prophecy, said the following, he said, Attempts have been made in our time to pierce the veil of the yet unknown through mystics and mediums, psychics and channelers, diviners, fortune tellers and the like, but none have yet beaten the odds and proven that they can meet the divine challenge. On the other hand, the God of the Bible has given hundreds of detailed prophecies which have come to pass exactly as predicted. It's not child's play, gang. This is the most relevant thing I can offer you to our faith, to our understanding and believing this message is divine. It is authenticated. It's not the the realm of blind faith either. I get so tired of hearing about Christianity described as blind faith. If you are a blind faith Christian, I'm not even sure you're a Christian. 
When your faith is blind, you're just jumping off. Again, that's how I was raised. It just seemed like a good thing. Now we wanted to take the kids to church. My friends, there is no reason for your faith to be blind and for you not to know. This practical, biblical, often, often authentication of the scriptures is powerful and it's relevant. And if the Bible, listen to this, if the Bible isn't 100% accurate, neither is my faith. Which is another thing that, that blows me away that I've actually heard Christians say. I believe most of it. <laughs> which parts? How do you know what you're going to believe and what you're not going to believe? How are you going to pick and choose? Either it's all God's word or it's not. And if any of it is not, don't pay attention to the rest because it might be wrong too. And yet with Bible prophecy, we have an authenticated message. But my friends, the Lord, through this prophetic message, also desired to communicate the method, not just the message, but the method through which He would bring salvation to a rebellious world. And we've already heard mention of it this morning. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 7. God says, Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order. From the time that I established the ancient nation. And let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. For I have long since announced it to you and declared it. And you are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me or is there any other rock? I know of none. Who are the witnesses? Who's he talking to here? Who are the witnesses? Who's this ancient nation? You see, over 4,000 years ago, God called a man, spoke to a man, and invited this man to, Genesis 12:1 tells us, go forth from his country. And God said, and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I'm going to make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless, and this is big, I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God dropped a pebble in the pond and it began to spread. And that pebble was a man named Abraham. The father of the Jewish people. God had not only a message that he wanted to authenticate, but he does authenticate with scripture, with prophecy. He also had a method through which he was going to bring salvation into the world. A method that would allow us to look at it and know that God is faithful. And know that God keeps his word. And know that this whole plan has got to be God because no one else could pull it off. So the man went. His name was Abraham, Abram at the time. He ended up traveling to a place back then called Hebron. You may have heard the word Hebron used in the Middle East today. It's still there. It's in the location of the West Bank. But what's interesting is that when he was there, he bought a field and he bought a cave. (laughs) And the title deed for this thing is the only title deed we have that runs back 4,000 years. Abraham's title deed for buying this cave in this field called Machpelah. And that title deed is in your Bibles. It's right here. You can look it up in Genesis chapter 23. Abraham bought the land. We still have the deed for it. It belongs to him. God called him to that land. Second thing to jot down, biblical prophecy not only authenticates God's message, it communicates God's message, which is Israel. Now I want you to hear this. Those of you who have been to the bridge any time, you know I have an interest in Israel. I like to talk about Israel. It's not just because, again, it's a buzzword for me. It's because it is so incredibly relevant to Scripture and to Christianity. Did you know as Christians you have Hebraic roots? You have roots that go back to the Hebrew people? 
You do. We actually do have somewhat of a heritage that's amazing. Listen, in the Bible, the word sin is used an estimated 350 times. The word love in the Bible is used some 250 times. The word Israel in the Bible is used 2,300 times or more. Think it might be important? Think God might be trying to say something? Man, only God's names are, re- are referred to more than Israel in the Bible. And of His names, one of the ones spoken most, most prevalently is the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Israel has a place in your life and in mine for us to understand. And not just if you happen to have a Jewish background. For every one of us. Oh, okay, Rick's one of those Jewish wannabes. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Have you seen their history? It hasn't been pretty. It's been very tough. We've already seen, gang, in the book of Deuteronomy, some compelling and detailed prophetic descriptions of Israel's history given by Moses before Israel was even in the land. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 25 through 31. We did a study on that recently. But in Deuteronomy 4, 25-31, we get a snapshot right there in those few verses of Israel's entire future before they were in the land. Where Moses says, hey, you're going to go into the land. But if you chase after their idols, and if you do these things, you're going to be driven out from the land. And when you're driven out from the land, you're then going to be dispersed among all the nations of the earth. And after that dispersion, God's going to come to you in a time of great distress and He's going to start bringing you back to the land. And look at the history of Israel. It's exactly what has happened. A prophetic authentication of Scripture. We'll also see in just a few weeks coming up here, Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 32. This book gears up, gang. We've been studying through it. It's fascinating and it's exciting and there's good stuff. And Moses is now kind of recounting some of the law. But you get up to chapter 28 and it just explodes in biblical prophecy. It is one of the most prophetic works in the scriptures about the people of Israel and what will happen. The detail, the specifics are mind-boggling about the people of Israel. And the continuing existence of the Jewish people across history itself is one of the greatest miracles spoken of in the Bible, a miracle that we can watch and see before our very eyes, present day. There should not be a nation of Israel today. Based on all accounts of any other people group that's ever lived on the face of the planet, there should not be a people. No one has been more maligned. No one has been more taken to town. No one has been more persecuted than the people of Israel. Why is that? Is it just, oh, bummer for them? I don't think so. Isaiah 46, verse 3, God says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You who have been born by me from birth, and have been carried from the womb. Listen, this is awesome. Even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it. I will carry you. I will bear you. And then he says, I will deliver you. And I think of Nicodemus going, how can an old man be born again? God says, I delivered you from birth. I birthed you through Abraham, going to Hebron, and and on through bringing you out of Egypt, back into the promised land. I birthed you in the beginning, in the early days. I will be with you in the old days. In your graying years. I'm going to be there. And I am going to deliver you again. Throughout history, massive empires have attempted to extinguish this people. Egyptians, Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Romans, the Crusaders, the Nazis, even in the previous century here, 
of Germany trying to exterminate an entire people group, a genocide. And please be aware that even as we speak, European anti-Semitism has risen to a level equivalent to or greater than what it was running up to Hitler before World War II. For Jews living in Europe right now, comparatively they say it is as bad or worse than it was then. And we go, oh come on, man. Are you? It can't be. We are a. We are an evolving people. We're better now than we were then. No, we're not. And the Jews are still under the gun. You may have been aware this last week of the UN addresses of Iranian President Ahmadinejad, and uh, of course there was Hugo Chavez making a fool of himself. We want to deal with that. But President Ahmadinejad spoke of justice for all the nations sidestepping his usual and constant declaration for the complete eradication of Israel. Question of Iran, standing before, and, and the commentators and the news are saying he really did a good job of really presenting himself and, and you know, he, he spoke well and he was articulate and he, he made some good points and he never once spoke the platform that he speaks all the time in his country, death to the Jews, death to the Jews, death to the Jews. No, in our, you know, in New York City, in our news, news conferences, it's all about justice for everyone. All nations need to have justice. And, all, and there's a place for everyone. And I don't hate anyone. And I, he even said, I'm not anti-Jewish. <laughs> I'm not sure what anti-Jewish looks like then. And yet this tiny nation, Israel, this postage stamp in the Middle East is preserved. And you might say, okay, Rick, you're going off. Why? And what does it have to do with me? Which is, you know, good self-centered American thinking. What does it have to do with me? Because I'm the center here and I'm kind of feeling a little left out. Me flag. Talk to me, Rick. Talk to me. Do not underestimate the importance and the relevance of Israel for you personally here today. Without Israel, gang... And I, I took some time to really process this thought. Without Israel, there would be no salvation. We wouldn't be saved. If not for God's method, the people of Israel. Romans chapter 11, verse 17. Paul said, If some of the branches were broken off, speaking of Israel, and you being a wild olive... I want to get a t-shirt that says wild olive. <laughs> wild olive. Anyway, sorry. If you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Gentiles, Christians, Paul wrote, don't be arrogant toward the branches. Don't be arrogant toward Israel. Remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Well, let me put a finer point on this. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9 for a moment. In the New Testament, all the way over to your right for a ways there. Romans chapter 9. There is a theology, very subtle, but very much at place in the church today. We've talked about it before. It's called replacement theology, and it's the idea that we have replaced Israel. They had their shot, they blew it, God is through with the Jew, and now we're moving on, and too bad for them. And it is completely, 100% unbiblical. And not just from an Old Testament perspective. Romans chapter 9, verse 1, listen to this. Paul, and this is a key teaching of this, in fact, 9, 10, and 11, I would challenge you to go home and read and study through and, and, and process. Paul says, I am telling the truth in Christ. 
I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. Paul was Jewish. For the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are the Israelites. What is Paul talking about here? He's talking about Israel. Does it make any sense that this reference to Israel might instead be a reference to the church? No. It makes no sense. There are people who will say to you that every reference to Israel in the New Testament is just now the church. It's metaphorical. It's allegorical. The church is the new Israel. Wrong. No. That's not what Paul's saying here. He said, I wish I were accursed for the sake of my brethren Israel, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are the Israelites. But listen now to what he says. To whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. To whom belongs present tense, not past tense. Paul doesn't say to those who lost the promises that now go to the church. You know, we get all the promises and blessings, they still get the curses. It's not what Paul's saying. All this belongs. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever. Note this. All these things listed. Paul defines Israel as having the adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises. And every single one of these things that Paul mentions here are present tense. At the time Paul was writing, Christianity was going at this point. Belief in Jesus was going strong. Salvation through the name of Jesus Christ was happening. And yet Paul said all these things and all the promises belong present tense to Israel. They have not passed away simply because Christianity is now on the scene. Just because Jesus has come and and fulfilled these things. They still have the promises. There's one exception to this. In this list, everything is present tense. There's one thing that is past tense, and that's the phrase, from whom is the Christ. For at the time of Paul's writing, Jesus Christ had already come the first time. And notice what he says at the end of verse 5 there. Who is Jesus? God, blessed forever, He's over all. Can it be any clearer? Is Jesus God? Is He not God? We talked about that quite a bit recently. Can it be any clearer? Just Paul calls Him God, blessed forever, the one who is over all. That's why, by the way, without Israel, there is no salvation. Because Jesus came through Israel, through whom came the Christ. If Israel didn't exist, if Satan could have somehow figured out a way to wipe Israel off the map, and he tried very hard before Jesus came, there would be no ability for Jesus to come. Oh wait, you're you're, you're tying God's hands there. No, not. He tied his own hands. God tied his own hands to this thing called prophecy. In the Old Testament, over and over and over and over, he proclaimed the prophet would come. He proclaimed, uh, a child is going to be born to you of a virgin. He proclaimed, this man is going to come. I'm going to send my son. He proclaimed, he's going to die for you. By his stripes, you're going to be healed. God proclaimed again and again. He described Psalm 2, Isaiah 53. He is so specific that you can see the crucifixion happening in these Old Testament, seemingly, passages. And God is saying, through Israel, I'm going to bring Jesus. And it will be through Israel. And I present to you this morning that one of the reasons why Israel still exists is because God is still at work in Israel. 
he is still proving himself through the Jewish people. And as far as you and I are concerned, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Having been brought near, gang, to a people with whom God was already actively engaged, the ancient nation, Israel. Biblical prophecy communicates God's method for getting through to us. And that method is through Israel. And they have a place not only past, not only present, but they have a place future. We'll talk about that in coming weeks. Number three, and the last and greatest reason for biblical prophecy. Back in Deuteronomy 18. 1,500 years... 1,500 years before the coming of the prophet declared here, Moses said these words. The Lord said to me, they've spoken well. Verse 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever does not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. The first time I actually sat down and studied this verse was in my fourth year of youth ministry and I had no idea it was even here in the Bible. We're all learners and we're all picking it up as we go. And I had a girl come to me. I've I've mentioned her before. Her name was Aisha. She was being drawn very heavily into the nation of Islam. And she came to me with this passage and she she said, Now now see this passage about this prophet. This prophet here. Moses talked about that God was going to raise up a prophet like Moses. You know who that is, don't you? That's Muhammad. That's the Prophet Muhammad. And that's what a Muslim today will tell you. A a learned Muslim will say, hey, your own scriptures talk about Muhammad. Deuteronomy chapter 8, look it up. God says, I'm going to send a prophet. In fact, Islam's not the only one that teaches the prophet of this verse. is their prophet, Muhammad. Mormonism teaches the same thing, not that it's Muhammad. They say, well, the prophet is Joseph Smith. He's the prophet right here. And you see it in Deuteronomy 18. And even Jewish people today will sidestep Jesus saying that this prophet is not an individual, but it's actually just kind of referring to all prophets. But I want you again to pay attention to the specificity of who this prophet is and how we can know who this really is. Three really quick keys to unlock and identify this person. Number one, the prophet will be like Moses. Like Moses, do a comparison. No prophet who's ever lived, with the exception of one, has ever had the power that Moses had. Muhammad never struck the rock and water gushed forth. Never happened. No other prophet ever went into the presence of God the way that Moses did. Even in all of Israel's prophets, the the Jewish people will tell you there was no prophet like Moses. He was unique in and of himself. Nobody looked like him, acted like him, had the power that he had. In fact, at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 34 verse 10 tells us, Since that time no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face. For all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants in all his land, and for all the mighty power and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. And interestingly, in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 14, after Jesus fed, miraculously, 5,000 people, 
the people were talking and, they, and it says therefore when the people saw the sign which he had performed they said this is truly the prophet who has come into the world referring to their own teachings Deuteronomy 18 this must be the prophet because no one has done this no one has fed a massive group of people before except for Moses and here Jesus does the same type of thing John chapter 7 verse 40 tells us some of the people therefore when they heard his words were saying this is certainly the prophet. And I'm going to read this to you quickly. Acts chapter 3 verse 24. You can turn there but I'm going to just read it off to you. Acts chapter 3 beginning in verse 22. Peter in his second great sermon after the church began he, he says the following Moses said the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren and to whom you shall give heed to everything he says to you and it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people and likewise Peter said all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days it is to you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenants which God made with your fathers saying to Abraham in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed for you first Peter says to the Jewish people for you first for you first God raised up his servant Jesus and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways Peter understood exactly who the prophet was Jesus Christ the prophet Jesus the prophet will be like Moses but secondly the prophet will have God's word in his mouth Jesus said John 12 49 I did not speak on my own initiative but the father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak interesting that Jesus would say that John 14.10 Jesus went on and said do, not believe, or do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you I do not speak on my own initiative but the Father abiding in me does His works. Now you might say okay but anyone could claim these things. Anyone could claim to speak the words of God. Many people have claimed to have and to speak the words of God. But the Lord wonderfully and prophetically narrows down the playing field. He narrows it down so much that it could only be one possible man. One man for whom over 300 prophecies were given about his first coming, which he fulfilled in entirely, every single one. And these stipulate that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the one who would be prophet and priest and king. But gang, there's one more specific key right here as to who this prophet is. And that's very simply, the prophet would be Jewish. And people miss that. People who claim, no, that prophet is this guy or that guy, miss the fact that the prophet must be Jewish. Look at verse 15 again. For the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your countrymen, your kinsmen. Literally, this prophet is Jewish. I may have shared this with some of you recently, but my son Hayden was riding in the car the other day with Cheryl and he just, just kind of blurted out, Mom, did you know that Jesus was Jewish? Did you know he wasn't even a Christian? My son, he's the reason for Christian Christ. Christian kind of put that together. It was just a big aha moment for him. But it's amazing how many Christians don't even think about the Jewishness of Jesus. Raised a Jew, born a Jew, 
trained up a Jew, living in and among the Jewish people, seen as and proclaiming himself to be the Jewish Messiah. This great prophet must be a Jew, which tends to start ruling people out pretty quickly. In AD 70, gang, the Hebrew family lines were lost forever when Jerusalem was destroyed. All the records of the lineage of the people. Which is why today when the Jewish people are trying to figure out who their priests really are, if they can eventually rebuild a temple in Jerusalem, which is the desire of many, especially the Hasidic Jews, they, think it, they, they need to know who their priests are, but they can't know because they don't have any, any lineage, any records. There's quite a bit of guesswork that's going on with that. There was one whose lineage was never lost. One Jew out of all, at the time AD 70, happened and all the records were destroyed because his record had already been written down, his lineage in the book of Matthew and in the book of Luke, Jesus' earthly heritage, and he's the only Jew who can prove he's a Jew. <laughs> Which is awesome. The prophet must be a Jew. And Paul, speaking of the Jewish people in Romans 9.5, I read this to you again, from whom is Christ, according to the flesh, who is overall God-blessed forever. So all this, simply to say, the third big, big point, the biblical prophecy, it authenticates God's message. It communicates God's method, His message being the Bible, His method being the people of Israel, and it stipulates God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. That there is no doubt or no question that Jesus is the prophet that God would send His Messiah. Currently, over 50% of all biblical prophecy has been fulfilled with staggering intricacy and precision. Authenticating the message, communicating the method, stipulating the Messiah, and with over 50% of biblical prophecy having been precisely fulfilled, and you can look it up and study it and see it to know it to be true, you can take the rest to the bank. The unfulfilled stuff about things that are to be, things that will happen, things that are to come, you can count on them. You can rest assured in them because the rest of it has been so specifically fulfilled. You don't have to hedge with your investment. You don't have to be a speculator in God's economy. Jesus is not only the prophet, he is the point of biblical prophecy. A couple more verses and we're done. John 5.39 Jesus said, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify of me. And Revelation 19.10 tells us the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit, the very breath of prophecy. had coffee on Friday morning with a couple of friends and with Russ and with Jeff and as we were talking I asked him a question knowing I was going to talk about this this morning and knowing that some of this was you know it's, it's basic to me getting some of this Bible 101 we need to understand these things the Bible Israel Jesus Christ very simple stuff and I was thinking this through and I asked him why is prophecy in the Bible why do you guys think that prophecy is in the Bible they both gave the same answer at different times hope hope that's why it's there so that I have hope God says in Jeremiah 29.11 I want to give you future and a hope. Peter said in 1 Peter 1.3 that we are born again to a living hope. So let me ask you these two questions. Are you hoping that it will just work out for you in the end? Are you just hoping it's going to work out? That's hedging. That's hedging. Tentatively thinking if I do the right thing if I happen to belong to the right church if I'm just good enough, I, I hope I hope when God comes that I'm good enough. 
And if all you're hoping on is your own hope, I want to warn you, you're in trouble. But if you're hoping on the person of Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Are you basing your future on your own deeds? That's speculating. On the works that you're performing now, it's absolute speculation. Don't hedge. Don't speculate. You can know for certain where you're going by putting your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ.